You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Just um, bef- before we jump in, will you just do me a quick favour? Just, just take a moment. Just, just pray for yourself that you would be open to the Holy Spirit. Lord, we long to become more like you. Some of us have known you a while. Some of us are just coming to discover you, but we want to become more like you. We want to know you. I pray through the power of your spirit that you'd reveal yourself to us this morning, that our hearts would soften and that you would speak to each of us individually in the way that you want to, that you might reveal more of your son, Jesus, that we might radiate him and reflect him to the world around us. Come upon us, God. You're welcome in this place. Amen. Guys, last week I, I started a series called How To. We want to be equipped to do the stuff of the kingdom. We just don't want to just talk about it. We want to do it. And to do that, I think that I don't think I know the Bible is our, it's our training manual. It's our instruction manual. And uh, I'm going to base a lot of what I'm talking about in this series on the, the book of Luke. And we're going to read about the, the works of Jesus. And then we're going to seek to be people that, that do the same. The word and the works should be and are inseparable to us. But studying the Bible isn't enough. We've actually got to do the thing that it then says. Uh, you don't go into a restaurant and uh, read the menu and then kind of stop there. That isn't enough. You don't eat the menu. You actually then order something, and then you eat the thing that arrives. And uh, it describes the meal that you're going to order, but then you've actually got to eat it before the transaction in itself is complete, if that makes sense. So we don't become satisfied with the menu. Reading the Bible without doing the works, the works that are detailed in the in the menu, is is not it. We've we've actually got to then live it out and and let it be evident in our lives. So, both the word and the works need to be inseparable as the message of Jesus is complete in our lives and and His kingdom is extended among us. Because Jesus came with power and to release power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead and set the captives free. And that kind of means that the responsibility for living that and doing that and being that comes to us, that Jesus came to face the enemy and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And and we're actually supposed to, to do this thing, to be equipped to defeat Satan's kingdom and to advance the kingdom of God. And we're, we're longing to kind of see what happens if, if a group of people are willing to say yes to that and to be obedient to that and to allow the Lord to do all that he wants to through us. And uh, I guess as well to say we, we kind of have to realize that that doesn't just happen. We have to drive at it. We have to kind of offer ourselves and present ourselves with a willingness to the Lord to say, hey, use me. Would it be that I'm so conformed to the display of your glory that... Um, I, I become all that you want me to be. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus as individuals and as, and as a church, and we seek to live it out. So we're not going to go, if you weren't here last week, we're not going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but we're going to try and keep our eyes on Jesus as he teaches us afresh the how-to, the equipping of, of, of the, the gospel that causes us to live it out. So um, I, I think one of the challenges is, We've, you may have noticed this if you were here last week, that Jesus teaches us 
even before he was physically around, when he was in the womb, there's things that we can learn from. Jesus continues to teach us even as a young boy. And this week I was trying to go, I just want to kind of jump into Jesus when he's a little bit older and some of the stuff. And I just, I couldn't get beyond it. Um, So we might be going a bit slower than I, I planned. And I was kind of thinking we'd come back to this at some point. But this morning I just want to touch a little bit on parenting because there's something about the young boy Jesus that teaches us about parenting. Now the danger is I've just said a word that loads of you go, oh, this one's not for me. Parenting is not for me. I'm not a parent or this one doesn't matter or my children have grown up or whatever it might be. Honestly, I just want to say this one really matters. Firstly, because we're looking at the life and the teaching of Jesus, so it all matters. But secondly, I I believe we all have a role to play as parents. We're all called to be sons and daughters of a king, but we're also all called to raise sons and daughters and to invest in others. So actually, we all get to do this thing. And I think there's some unique things we can learn along the way. So last week, we kind of broadly looked at chapter one. This week, I just want to jump into chapter two as we start to look at the young boy Jesus as he grows up. And um, Luke chapter two, verses 21 onwards, kind of covers three different scenes. And the first scene begins in in verse 21, where Jesus is, um, he's eight days old, and he's about to be circumcised. Let me just read it to you. It says this, eight days later, That's how we know he's eight days old. When the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given to him by the angel even before he was conceived. That's the first scene. The second scene is this, verse 22. Then it was time for the purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The reference to the days of purification that I just read, uh, kind of according to the Old Testament law, it puts us at about 33 days after Jesus' birth. So verses 22 to 40 give us this glimpse of of kind of like a one-month-old Jesus. And then verses 41 onwards give us this third scene where Jesus is around 12 years old. Let me just read that to you in verse 40. It says this. The child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. Verse 52, it goes on. Let me, let me read that as well. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people. Now, I, I think there's, there's kind of three factors that really contributed to Jesus' wisdom and stature before God and people. I want to dig into it and look at the how-to of Jesus. How how did Jesus live? How did Jesus ask us to live? How do how do we parent? How has He asked us to live out parenting? And I I believe this is important for us as both those with um, biological uh, children, but also those of us who are actually seeking to press in to be children of God who then raise sons and daughters. Does that does that make sense? That's hopefully where we're going to go with this first bit. This morning. So, so the first thing to say is this, that the kind of the key principle I think we can learn is Jesus had righteous parents. I think that's what we pick up if we look at Luke 2, 21 to 24. It says this, 
Eight days later, when the baby was circumstanced, he was named Jesus, and the name given him by the angel even before he's conceived. I just read it. Then it was time for the purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons now naturally speaking how did jesus grow in wisdom and stature before god and man i i want to suggest this is the first one he had righteous parents mary and joseph's obedience reflects righteousness in a number of ways the first one is that really they show their righteousness by obeying the angel's instructions to name the baby Jesus. That's an act of faith and an act of obedience in itself. Last week we kind of looked at it where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, announces to this virgin that she would conceive a child and the the you, we kind of read that actually she was quite troubled by that you can read it in chapter 1 verse 29 but she believed God. She was troubled by it but she believed God and according to Matthew 1 verse 18 Joseph initially thought that Mary had been unfaithful the bible calls joseph a righteous man in verse 19 who planned to divorce quietly mary to save her from public embarrassment then the angel appears to joseph in a dream the angel told joseph to take mary as his wife and that the child was conceived in her through the holy spirit and the angel told mary and joseph independently that the baby's name was to be Jesus. Matthew 21 gives us the reason for the name. It means that he will save the people from their sins. And then in Luke 2:21, where we've just been reading, we see that the couple complete their obedience to God by naming him Jesus. Every time they call that baby Jesus, they're almost affirming and reaffirming the obedience that God has called them to live out. Calling the son Jesus reminds them that God visited them. God was among them. God was present with them. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that they show their righteousness by obeying the law of God. They responded not only to the supernatural revelation of the angel, but also to the written wisdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, we we can get into this quite dangerous mindset of, of God has told me. And we, de- we declare what it is. But it doesn't always square itself with, with God's word. And I actually, I want to caution us to that because I think it's really dangerous. Actually, God doesn't tell us stuff that is contrary to what he says in his written word. Mary and Joseph have the unseen revelation from this angel, but also the regular revelation that comes through the depths of scriptures as we read them. This was foretold. They, they, they could have known this was going to happen. They, they believe and they obey God's word, not just the supernatural revelation. Mary and Joseph carefully follow the law and they carefully follow the timeline of the law of Moses that we find in Leviticus 12. They circumcise Jesus on the eighth day and they take him to Jerusalem to present him to God. And verse 23 reminds us that the baby actually already belonged to God but they dedicated him to the Lord. Mary and Joseph make their obedience complete by offering him worship to the Lord as was required by the, by the law. That's what we see in verse 24. Now, 
naturally speaking, the first reason Jesus grew in wisdom and stature was because he had earthly, righteous parents. They obeyed God. I, this, this is kind of the point I want to make from this. As parents, as, as spiritual parents of others, in, as investors in others, we have an incredible influence on our children. And sometimes we've got to realize that. As parents, how you act and how you live will affect your children, will affect your spiritual children. During our sabbatical, um, our children pulled me up on a word that they often hear me say. They're like, mummy, daddy said this. And uh, I just want to kind of reassure you, it's not blasphemy. It wasn't swearing. I wasn't kind of living an outlandish life for three months. Some, some would actually say, it's fine. What's wrong with you? Your kids are just too sensitive. Do you know, it's, it's not fine, actually. For, for their sake, but for my sake, for my own walk with Jesus, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be loose in my speech and in my language. And I kind of, in the moment, maybe made a bit of a mistake, but I committed that I'd give a pound away every time I said it. And uh, thankfully, I changed quite quick, and it only cost me one pound. But um, <laughs> I, I, just, I just want to say this, that, that you may not think this matters, but it matters deeply. Your language and your attitude and your eating and drinking habits and your mood and your temperament and how you react on the phone and how you are when you drive and your sarcasm and your skepticism and how we talk about the church and how we talk about faith and how we talk about politics and how we talk to others and how we talk to our children really matters. And this isn't just about, don't put this in the box of this doesn't affect me because I don't have... <coughs> I don't have children. <coughs> this is spiritual parenting. You have, and you're supposed to have, influence. We get to raise others. We, who, <coughs> who and how are you raising others? What are they getting off you? Because what they regard as plausible in the faith is often shaped and influenced by you and your faith. Their inconsistencies and their hypocrisies are often seen in our faith. Are they not? Or is that just me? Because that's what I so often see in my children. I'm like, oh gosh, why do you do that? Oh no. I think I know where you've learned that. And that is why believing righteous, obedient parents are a tremendous blessing to a child. We, I believe, can create a generational reset. I realize speaking about this for some of you is really difficult to hear. But I want to say this, you can create a generational reset. My dad was abusive. My dad was absent. If that's you, if right now you're pained by what you did have or what you didn't have, even pained by your lack of spiritual parenting, grieved by what you didn't have, I just want to say stick it in the arms of Jesus. But not only stick it in the arms of Jesus, vow that it stops with you. See, my vow before the Lord is that some of the line that came to me from my dad stops with me. I don't want to let that pass me into my children, into my spiritual children. And therefore, actually, I've got to do some serious self-discovery of what those things are. I can't always see my blind spots because they're blind. But it is our obedience that creates a context for a growing child to see the need of their obedience to a father. We do well, I think, to ask ourselves, is our obedience to the word of God 
as consistent as it was for Mary and Joseph? What do our children learn about serving God as they watch us? Now, you may be thinking, I'm a parent and I'm not righteous like Mary and Joseph. I, I, I kind of want to say I've, I've got some more good news for you. While you yet breathe, you have opportunity to do something about this. You have an opportunity to confess and repent and turn afresh to Jesus and allow it to be all that it could be. You have an opportunity to recognize your failings, to recognize your sins. There's nothing quite like parenthood to, to cause us to feel insecure about our, in, our inability. We all stumble. We all fall short in what it could be and what it should be, and yet it is the very nature of God to deal with us so graciously in all of our failings and shortcomings. There is no failing in our life that Jesus has not overcome if we're willing to confess it and repent of it and to seek righteousness and redemption that can be found in Jesus. That's the first thing I want to say is Jesus had righteous parents. The second thing is this. Jesus had revealed purpose. Now, we don't have time to read all of it. You can look yourself, but if you look at Luke 2, 25 to 40, you've got Simeon, you've got Anna, you've got Simeon's prophecy, you've got Anna's preaching. All of this speak of something of the purpose of Jesus, the purpose of his life. It speaks to him and over him. There's an affirmation that flows from them. This is Jesus's revealed purpose is to save people from their sin and he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature and he grew in favor with God and people because from infancy he had people speaking life and truth over him in supernatural ways and in natural ways is his name Jesus was just a constant reminder to him and others of his very purpose Jesus is the only savior so no one else has that purpose and as much as I deeply dearly love my children as much as I deeply love the church and the sons and daughters that he asks us to raise and invest in spiritually we're not perfect you know that but do you know that of yourself because we can't be people's saviors they need a savior that's the revealed purpose for our children and our spiritual children and our kids would do better and do well if they have a general sense of the purpose of God in their lives. And every moment, I want to say this every moment, which is why it matters so much that it affects how we are in our mood and our skepticism and the way we talk and everything. Because every moment of our lives is a teaching and a training opportunity. How we handle things, how we act and react. Verse 33 says this, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. They were amazed at what was being said about him. They were literally blown away by what Jesus was saying. They didn't yet understand all that was being said about him, which I've got to say to some of you parents, that is a deep encouragement. There's so many things about parenting. I'm like, what is going on here? I thought I'd worked it out yesterday, and now today we're in a whole new dawn and a whole new day of trying to work something out. What an encouragement to us if Jesus' parents were living righteously but hadn't yet worked it out. We don't have to have all of the details settled and worked out and understood about our children's future. Those that you're spiritually investing in and mentoring, sometimes they'll bring you something and you're like, I just, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. We don't have to have those details and many things may leave us wondering, but we do know this that our children were made to know God. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that they were given to us that we might be shepherds to them. How wonderful it is to tell a child, to tell anybody and everybody that they are loved by God, that God proved his love for them, that whilst they were still sinners, even before they were born, Jesus came into the world to die for them. What a difference it makes to have a sense of purpose and worth and dignity that it gives and offers a child to know that they're loved and loved not only by us, but most of all by God. Each parent can give that child a gift. Each of us gets to give that away to each other. What a joy it is to bring into the room almost like a prophetic affirmation over each other to say, you are loved by the love of God. I, there's so much I can't offer you. There's so much I can't give to you when I see your need and your pain and your brokenness and your frailty and your insecurity, but I know what I can give you. I can give you free access to the love of God, which is really all you need in the first place. We have every reason to believe that every child who receives that sense of purpose will grow in wisdom before God. Don't we want to be people that grow in wisdom before God? What did the growing boy Jesus have that our kids so deeply and desperately need? The righteous parents revealed purpose. It took me a while to get the third one to begin with R, but it's responsible parents. Luke 2, verse 41 to 52 kind of goes on. We, we, I said earlier that Mary and Joseph were righteous parents, and this last scene shows that, that actually they were also responsible parents. They were responsible in their religious devotion. Verse 41 and 42, we see the boy Jesus is now 12 years old. For the past 12 years old, for the, sorry, for the past 12 years, his parents have taken him on this annual pilgrimage to worship during the Passover. They were responsible when it came to watching over Jesus. Now, we might not think if some of you have read ahead and you fully realize how responsible they were for the fact that they left him in Jerusalem and completely forgot about him. I don't know if you've ever done that, but you've had that moment of like, where are the children? I thought you'd taken them. And suddenly you realize they're not exactly where you thought and they love hiding under tables and things like that. But Mary and Joseph, I find it quite refreshing. They're so human. They spend five days Five days. I mean, I've lost the kids for a few minutes and panicked. Five days they're looking for Jesus. They went a day's journey without with thinking that he was in the group and he wasn't in the group. They returned to Jerusalem, which was another day to get back. And then they searched for him in a big crowded city for three days. And of course they were distraught. Of course that pained them of probably blaming each other. Have you ever, have you ever done that one? Not just with losing children, but it's so easy, isn't it? Joseph thinks, well, what kind of mother loses the son of God? I mean, that's kind of quite a, that's a good one to call out. Who does that? If there's, if there's one rule, kind of make sure the saviour of the world is with us. And uh, Mary, I think, thinks to, to herself, like, look at him looking at me, you know? He's the man. He's the one who thinks he's got it all together. He's supposed to take care of the family. It's his son. How could he leave his son in the city? I, I can't do everything. I packed the tent and made the breakfast and sorted the lunch and can't even just watch after his son for five minutes. And they, they lost Jesus, but they didn't stop until they found him. Some of you, honestly, this, this is painful for you to hear today because there's so many things that you live in regret and so many things where you're like, if I had my time again, I would have done. 
so many almost hardships that we carry, even among ourselves as a community of faith, but they didn't stop until they found him. I, I love that. Isn't that the business of Jesus? You just keep searching for things that are lost until they're found. That's responsible parenting. You see, sometimes responsible parenting is actually better seen in how you respond to the failing than it is in how you respond to the success. Guys, I, it, it's, it's important you realize we all get it wrong in church life, in community, in relationship with each other. We get it wrong. It can't just be me. We say and do silly things and we bump into each other and we collide and we, we try not to, but we do. Mary and Joseph so wonderfully respond to this danger and mistake with parental care and urgency and love. When they find the boy Jesus, they realize that he was where he was maybe always meant to be. He's in the temple worshiping and teaching. I think that speaks to their responsibility as parents too. Young Jesus has done so much of this that is actually then just a natural instinct of him. I would love that of my children. If I lost them for five days, that somehow I just find that they found themselves in the community of God worshiping. It just becomes a natural overflow for him because of the way they've raised him and trained him and taught him. Verse 46 says this, three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is sat among the teachers, listening and asking questions. He's holding court with his elders. Isn't that amazing? Everyone was amazed when they heard his understanding and his answers. Even verse 48, it says his parents were astonished when they saw him. By the age of 12, Jesus is the wisest person in the land. But you know, no matter how special our children are, we still so often act like parents, don't we? We have to learn to let the kids get out of the car seat. And I honestly say this as much about spiritual parenting as I do to those of you that have children yourselves. We have to let them grow up, even when other people, even when our children let us down and hurt us and frustrate us. We have to learn to let them grow and to change and to believe in them again and again and again and often for who they could be rather than who they are. Mary, I, I don't know, but I wonder, Mary probably had this mixture of relief and fear because you're almost afraid. She's panicked in that moment. She's lost him for five days. She almost can't help but scold the child, even though what she's really trying to say is, I love you, I'm just so glad you're back. And also, I'm so glad that you were just in the temple doing the thing that I always wanted you to do. It says, verse 48, his parents didn't know what to think. Of course they didn't. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching everywhere for you. Verse 49, but why did you need to search for me, he asked. Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Do you know what that verses kind of say and I think it proves that responsible parenting can give our children a higher level of responsibility than often we realize or imagine Jesus replied to Mary why were you searching for me didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house and that sentence the 12 year old boy demonstrates profound understanding of his identity and purpose 
He knows he's the son of God. No one would have spoken that way before. That's why no one actually really understands him when he says it. It says that in verse 50. Jesus makes it clear that God is his father and he makes it clear that the father's business is his business. It might seem he's been rude. He's not been rude. He's just clear about his identity and purpose that's always been spoken over him. Remember, one of the things we get to do is speak it over people. He knew what he was about because that's what had been said. Verse 51, then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. I love that. He humbly goes home with his parents and he submits to them. He's simply making it clear that he seeks God independently (coughs) of his earthly parents. Worship isn't just for adults. We've got to realize that. I loved it. The youth were in this morning. They're in most mornings as we worship. We should go out of our way to foster and create environments where they feel welcomed and loved, where they feel that they have spaces and places to worship Jesus, not just themselves, but among us. It's for 12-year-olds and younger and everyone of every age. We have to help people find and have access to ways to worship Jesus, to seek him, to know him, to love him, and for us to let go of the reins so that they can start to take them. The main way God gets his voice into your life, I don't know if you've seen this or realize this, is often through the leadership and the counsel of others. It's often through parents, spiritual parents. For many of you, that'll be hard because it won't be your earthly parents, but it will be if you allow it your spiritual parents, the family of the church. And I want to say to you this morning, don't neglect that voice because your parents are the authority that God has placed in your life for your blessing and for your protection, for your training, for your correction. Let's just very slightly change tack just a little bit because the good news, if you've got people around you cheering you on, that's phenomenally good news. The bad news is, You're going to need it because the enemy will come for you and he will come for your identity. Jesus teaches us how to stand firm. If we roll on just a little bit into Luke 4, we see something else going on with Jesus. We see that the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days where he's about to be tempted by Satan. And the main issue at stake in this temptation is what? It's the identity of Jesus. It's whether or not he's truly the son of of God. In verse 3, Satan comes to Jesus and he, he says this. Let me read it to you. He says this, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. If you are, see that seed of doubt, see how he goes after his identity, everything that's been spoken over him and affirmed over him, if you are. Again, in verse 9, the serpent says, if you are, the Son of God. Let me just read it to you. Verse 9 says this, the devil took him to Jesus, sorry, to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the Son of God, jump off. Everything that's been affirmed in him is now about to have tried to be unpicked. The immediate context of this um, temptation harks back to Others were, previously they were called the son of God. If you read in Luke 3.38, Adam received the mention that Adam was the son of God. You'll recall the temptation, Satan's temptation of Adam 
in the garden where Adam failed that test. Now we've got Jesus presented as the second Adam. The passage harks back to Hosea 11 verse 1 where God calls Israel his child. And he declares, out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Israel. And in Hosea 11, verse 2, once God had delivered his people from bondage, they entered the wilderness where they went on to worship the idols rather than God. Israel, too, failed to be God's perfect son. And the wilderness temptation lurks for us in the background of what we're now reading in Luke 4. And then here we're finally presented with God's true son and the true Israel, which is Jesus. And just as Adam had his garden temptation, now Jesus has his wilderness temptation. I guess the point I want you to realize is that everything that God affirmed, Satan tries to contradict. Can I, can I just say that again, not to patronize you, because I think it's important that everything that God affirms, Satan tries to contradict. Who you are, what you're about, how you are as parents, as spiritual parents, the way you're trying to surrender your life to the fullness of all that he has for you. If you're living out the mandate of God on your life, the enemy is going to try and rip that up, destroy it, and contradict it. Now, sometimes you may feel like you're up against it, Honestly, it's because you are. You are resisting. Now, thankfully, the good news is we don't end there. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. But I don't take this lightly. The enemy is trying to destroy your family. Sorry, I'm only back week two and we're going in pretty hard. Some of you, this is your first week. Is like, what's going on? But the enemy is trying to destroy your family, your friendships, your relationships, and your desire to live out the fullness of the kingdom of God, to extend love, kindness, and generosity. If you don't... And I don't look for the devil under every stone or rock, but you've got to realize we've got to factor this stuff in. We have to, because he plans to limit you. He's scheming to limit you. You have to refuse to be limited. Satan seizes upon Jesus in his human weakness. Verse 2 says this, Jesus ate nothing all the time because, sorry, Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Satan hates humanity. Satan loves, if he can love anything, it's kind of an oxymoron on himself, but Satan loves to attack us at our point of weakness. Three times over these 40 days, Satan attacks Jesus. Now, we've gone from the three R's. I'm very quickly going to look at the three P's. The devil tempts Jesus with provision. Verse three, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus quotes from Israel's wilderness wanderings in Deuteronomy 8.3, he says this, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. Matthew adds it where he tells it, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, verse 4. Satan then goes on to tempt Jesus with power. We've had provision, now we've got power. Verse 5, the devil took him up and rewarded him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He says, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please, and I will give them to you if you worship me. Sometimes Christians debate whether or not Satan is capable of really doing this. I think the very fact we debate it indicates we are not Jesus. You know, the moment we begin to entertain whether Satan can deliver on his purpose, surely we're already losing the spiritual battle. 
Jesus again answers by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. It says this, Luke 4, verse 8. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan shoves him in self into the place of God, almost willing to bargain worship for power. But Jesus reserves worship for God and God alone. Satan finally starts to tempt Jesus with protection. He goes provision, power, protection. Aren't they three things that we all crucially need in our walk with Jesus? If you know how he tries to work, you're going to be better equipped to stand against him. He's coming after you with provision, power, and now protection. Verse 9 to 11. Satan now begins to twist and use scripture. Do you see that happening? He almost twists something of Psalm 91. He turns the word of God into uh, an occasion not to trust God and something to test God. Isn't it striking that so far Jesus has quoted scripture to Satan and now Satan thinks himself subtle enough to start quoting the Bible and twisting it to Jesus and even trying to deceive the son of God. But Jesus answers with scripture. Verse 12, he says, Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. We've got to know the Bible because other people, culture, Satan will try and twist it. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, God is to be trusted, God is to be served, and God is to be worshipped, but he is not to be tested. Then Satan left Jesus until a later time. In his own time and in a way that glorified the Father, Jesus revealed everything that Satan tried to tempt him with. Don't you find that remarkable? Everything that the enemies come after him with, Jesus at a later date reveals in a healthy and a right way. Jesus would miraculously produce bread for the hungry masses. He would obtain all authority and splendor in heaven and earth through the cross and the resurrection. And he would receive the service and the worship of angels as he rules at the Father's right hand. Honestly, the best way... The best way to fight temptation is to realize that so often it is actually stuff that God wants to give us, but he wants to give us it in a holy way if we'll wait on him and trust him and his timing. All of these temptations, Jesus realizes and relies on God's work. He stands on the word of God. Jesus quotes and trusts scriptures from that fact. I think we can deduce Jesus' love of the word of God. First, he believes the Bible applies to our temptation. Secondly, he believes that the Bible is truly the word of God. And thirdly, Jesus believes in the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures. And we have to. This is the menu. We, we don't eat the menu. We live out what it tells us to do. He doesn't fudge it or quibble it, but he stands on the word of God. I know some of you have and are taking an absolute battering and if you're not at some point you will because he'll come after your way of living your way of relating your way of thinking we could go on and on and on because he'll come after all of it living for jesus really means sticking a target on your fronts and your backs but we've got to call it out for what it is and we have to stand firm i guess the question is why is this text why is Luke 4 given to us in the way that it is. Is it so we can trust the word of God or is it so that we can trust the son of God? I think so often we fall into this almost dangerous position of 
kind of just quoting a few quick Bible verses. Uh, just kind of chuck a few out and Satan will jog on. I've, I've done it. I don't think it works like that. We trust God's word, but actually that is, I think, in this passage, almost the secondary application. Jesus' perfect interpretation and obedience to God's word reveals that he is the son of God. Our primary application of this passage should be Jesus is God's son. Will you trust him? Will you offer and surrender your life to him? We need the meal. We don't just need the menu. We need the meal. We can't just teach our children this. We've got to receive it ourselves. Jesus endured temptation in our place so that in our temptation, what do we do? We flee to him. He conquered our adversary. The son stands in the place to defeat temptation and to defeat the enemy that comes against us. He does not say to to us, okay, now that's how you do it. He does it himself. Jesus endured temptation. He becomes our great high priest. It's what Hebrews 4.15 says, that he's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Right now, Jesus reigns in heaven as a priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews 14, 15, this high priest of ours stands so he understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So now what do we do? We come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we find his grace to help us when we need it. It makes it possible for us to approach his throne with boldness and grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus didn't endure this so that we would have just a model to follow. He did this so that we would have mercy to find in our failing. Jesus delivers us. He's the perfect high priest who offers us both a sacrifice and righteousness for us individually to receive. The ultimate issue here is whether or not Jesus is the son of God. That's why Satan keeps going for him. Satan's aim is to destroy Jesus' sonship so that he might destroy our salvation. So if Jesus falls into any of those temptations, he couldn't be the sinless sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. So Satan unleashes the most demonic assault in the history of creation and Jesus remains faithful to the Father throughout it all. No natural man could withstand such a demonic assault. Only God could. Let me, let me just finish by saying this, because I think it's important for some of you. The enemy will go after your identity. If you are to steward the growth of your children, if you're to steward your own growth and the growth of your spiritual children, the devil will try and go at your kneecaps to stop you. In our temptations, in our insecurities, in our vulnerabilities, in our weaknesses, honestly, the best strategy is run to Jesus. He's our strength. He's our shield. He's our high priest who prays and intercedes for us. He's our victory. He's our confidence. However well we know the word of God, let us not begin to think that we need it so well that we don't first need to flee to Jesus. Don't stick just with the menu. We have to eat the meal. Our high priest who has overcome the tempter on our behalf, we need him. We need Jesus. Why don't we stand together?
begin to digest some of that. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite you now to just open yourself up to the Father. to even perhaps soften yourself again to the Father. Let's just rest in his presence. It's in his presence that we're changed and in his, his empowering that we can be changed. And so let's just let him, let him in. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.